Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Second Chance Podcast. My guest today, Colleen Richards, is a sex and relationship engineer, a master sensual masseur. Now, I don't really know what that entails, but I'm keen to understand more. He says what he offers is a chance for people to transform their relationships and sex lives to become what they want and deserve. He uses various different approaches to help people in this intimate part of their life. By combining his knowledge of sexual and relationship psychology with his experience as a sensual masseur, he works on both the emotional and sexual. Colin says he has helped over 6,000 people and works with single women, men and couples of any age and orientation. His approach to sex and intimacy is best described as humanistic in that he looks at the biological, psychological, social, anthropological and the erotic influences behind our sensual desires, curiosities and fears. All sounds really fascinating, right? His treatments include sensual massage, psychosensual treatments, relationship counselling, and individual trainings and group workshops to enhance sexual confidence and foreplay knowledge and skills. I don't know what you're thinking at this point, but it sounds like this is going to be a very, very interesting conversation if, you know, you want to learn more about these things. Anyway, let's see what we can learn to give our vavavum a second chance. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Colin. It's, it's a bit different to what I normally do um, in terms of the guests that I have on. But then let's see where that goes. My understanding is that you are a more than a sex therapist, but um, that's one way of describing part of the work that you do. 
And my podcast is about second chances, and that can mean a whole array of things. But let me ask you first what a sex therapist does. And I know that you are a specialist masseur of some kind, but I, I, I suppose generally the work that you do helps people in relationships or individuals recover something. What is that something that you help them recover? But first, tell me a little bit about the work that you do, Colin. Yeah, sure, Raphael. Well, thank you again for inviting me on your podcast. And yes, you're absolutely right. I am a sex therapist, although I prefer to call myself uh, a sex and relationship engineer. And obviously, I am a professional masseur as well, but that's integrated into what I do. So first and foremost, you know, let me explain the word engineer, because that's an unusual word to use for what I do. I look at it from the point of you cook sexuality in a very humanistic approach. You know, it's uh, it's not just about the biology of sexuality, the pleasure of sexuality. It's also about the psychology. It's about the anthropology. You know, we've been having forms of sexual and intimate connection for millions of years. It's about understanding how all those connections still operate within us unconsciously and how many of this now, when they manifest, obviously, in the 21st century, when we're in relationships, can cause problems, whether it's anxiety, whether it's cultural, whether it's religion, uh, whether it's lack of knowledge, you know, all of these things. And so what I try to do is strip back to understand what the problem is and then basically re-engineer the person on a physical and uh, psychological level so that they can run more smoothly when they're out having relationships, whether those relationships are long-term relationships or whether they're ones that have been going for a while and are maybe flagging a little bit, they've gone into the slow lane, as it were, or maybe it's someone coming into the world of sexuality for the first time and wanting to learn more. So that's basically what I do, and I use my uh, understanding of, of massage as a way or my, my my skills as a masseur to try and recreate the sexual process as near as possible so that we can then understand the psychological reactions when they're in that situation. And I can explain that a little bit more. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that's what I do. And going back to why am I here on this, uh, this podcast with you uh, to do with, you know, second chances. Well, you know, I haven't been doing this all my life. I started doing this uh, 18 years ago when my life went through massive changes and I had to literally start again. But also, ironically, um, five weeks ago, I had another restart in a slightly different way. Uh, I discovered I needed a quadruple heart bypass. So realistically, <laughs> I'm sitting here in a new lease of life because I was told by my surgeon and cardiologist that I should have died within the last two years. <laughs> wow, so here I am powerful. now in my third chance. It's not my second chance, it's my third chance. So I'm not quite sure where this next 25 years is going to go, but I'm very enthusiastic about it because I kind of feel I've been given an extra extra life ticket to uh, to get my work done. <laughs> Well, well, you look very fit and healthy from from where I'm sitting, and um, it's good to know that that you came through that that most recent trauma, which must have been and must still be very challenging. But that's obviously testament to to your strength, determination, and and resilience. Because, wow, you know, to have that and still be kind of plotting around is a good thing. What happened 18 years ago that that turned your life around? Well, my my life. 
when I'm when I'm out in the public arena, when I'm doing presentations or, you know, just generally with friends or going to a party and I one invariably someone says to you at some point, you know, what's your job? And I have to take a deep breath as to decide to just keep quiet and avoid the subject because I can tell you it's amazing how once you bring up the subject of sex, people will talk about it in public to the most deepest detail, which sometimes can be a little bit inappropriate when you're at a bus stop. Uh, other times I'll say it and, uh, you know, we'll have a good conversation and I'll help somebody even in a social situation. But the question always is, how on earth did you become a sex therapist, a sex engineer? And my answer is, well, it wasn't something that just happened overnight. It developed, but obviously it did have a beginning. And for me, what I look back on now is how actually all aspects of my life, going right back to even actually birth, believe it or not, has come together to make me what I am today. And I think we can all probably say that about our, our world, you know, the, the good parts, the bad parts. And I often look at the, the difficult times as being the positive times in the long term, because it shows you who you are. So my life really started in a very comfortable way. I, I I was born into a very, you know, pretty well-off family. My family, my parents bought a hotel down in Devon when I was a year old. I grew up in a 140-bed hotel in on the South Devon coast. It was a beautiful location. And as everybody who stayed there with their families used to say to me, oh, you're so lucky to live here. You've got a swimming pool. You've got beaches. You've got unlimited Coca-Cola. So I was seen as being a very gifted child, a lucky child. But at the same time, I was a bit like the ship's cat, wandering around this hotel, fitting in with other people, being invited on picnics, and never really developing long-term friendships because people came and went very quickly. My sisters were much older than me, so I was a bit of an only child. I was sent to boarding school at the age of eight. And so from eight to 18, I had these two lives. But nevertheless, you know, I was I was happy, comfortable and healthy and very much unconsciously being groomed to take over the family business. So at the age of 21, 22, I took over the family business quite young to be running a place with, a, you know, 40 staff and 140 guests. And it really was, you know, just suck it and see and see how it went. So I ran it very much like a private house, really, uh, and learned quite early that the way to do this was to be entertaining. Uh, I ran all the entertainments, the host. So I began to really understand sort of people's psychology. Nevertheless, you know, you know, when you're dealing with business people on holiday and they get angry or they're upset about the fact that the, the butter's melted on the side plate, you begin to question why they're getting so upset. So my interest in psychology was then. Anyway, skip forward a bit, married. I uh, had five children quite quickly in nine years. And my father at the time was, um, my parents were both in their late 60s, early 70s. And uh, unfortunately, probably now in hindsight, partly to do with the fact that my father was going into early dementia, uh, he was persuaded to take me into Lloyd's insurance market and I became a name at Lloyd's. Now, some people will know what that means, others won't. But basically, it was an institution uh, in the insurance market, Lloyd's of London, where, should we say, people with worth, and I was basically the owner of a big hotel, 
uh, could join. And in effect, it was a sort of way to make money from your asset. Well, unbeknown to me, I knew nothing about it. I followed into the footsteps of a father and grandfather. And two years later, or three years later, after joining, Lloyd's crashed, and I went down for 1.5 million back in 1991-92. So suddenly, the uh, the silver spoon was very firmly yanked out of my mouth and everything began to sort of crumble around me. The hotel had to be sold very quickly. I obviously was getting to the age of nearly 40. My marriage was having difficulty. And to cut a very long story short, with by 2002 uh, or 2004, I found myself basically uh, unemployed, uh, divorced and bankrupt and literally with five pounds in my pocket, trying to start again, uh, trying to, I gave everything uh, over to my partner, my wife at the time, and basically felt that she could have the security with the kids uh, and I could start again. And even at that time, at its worst moment, there was something of relief because for the first time in my life, I felt in control of my destiny in the sense that I was no longer expected to take over the family business and no longer expected to be the person that everybody wanted me to be. Mr. Mr. Garrow Rock, I was known as. And so that's really the, that was the bottom point. That was the point where things were at rock bottom. And uh, by this time in this journey, I had actually learned to be uh, a masseur because you know, I, I was aware that things were not good. And at the age of 40, to try and find a new job was going to be tough. I'd never had any interview with any other type of job because I'd gone straight out of college into running the hotel. So I was basically unemployable at the age of 40. And by doing this massage course, I thought, well, if all else fails, at least I've got my hands. Unbeknown to me and never expecting that it would one day become my major career. Anyway, in 2005, uh, I think it was probably about January 2005. My colleague, who I was working with, we'd set up. I'd set up a little uh, consultancy business to try and make ends meet. Uh, she had, should we say, gone for a, uh, one of those weekends away uh, to meet a gentleman. And when she came back, I asked her whether it had been successful, and her comment was, uh, "No, but I did give him the most amazing tantric cock massage." And I just sort of went, what do you mean, Jackie? She said, well, you know, he was happy, I was happy, and I was happy to do it. And then she looked across the, uh, the, the room at me and she went, you should do this. I said, what do you mean I should do this? She said, well, you should give professional erotic massage. And at this time, I was already, you know, exploring my sexuality. I'm, I'm, I regard myself as, I call myself heterobisexual. I'm comfortable with men and women. And that was part of the, the, the breakup of the marriage and the change. And so she said, well, you're on gaydar, you're a masseur, you're a businessman, put the whole lot together and start giving erotic massage to gay men who are exploring like you are. And I went, no, I can't do that. That would make me an escort. And I'm now living in deep, darkest Devon. You know, it's not exactly a hotbed of the gay community in Kingsbridge. And uh, 15 minutes later, I'm sitting there again, looking at gaydar going, Maybe she's got something here. So I very quickly uh, I, I adjusted my... It, it sounds like it didn't take much to persuade you to start exploring. Like I, I jump in there, Colin. Thank you for sharing that, that journey. I, I just want to go back. I don't want to harbour the point, but I just want to go back to what you said about, you know, losing everything that you owned or that was, you know, sort of handed on to you to, to make a success. And people often, and I often 
wonder how when somebody comes from worth and they have money, how can you spend everything? How can you lose everything? How can you hit rock bottom? People often don't believe that that's possible. There must always be something in reserve that you can call on, even in your worst moment. When you come from money or when you have assets, that means at some point you can relinquish them and then take the cash in order to live. So so how do you get to that point where you have absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing, and you have to start again when you had something at the beginning? And I mean, I know it happens in people's lives all the time, but when we're talking about, you know, over a million pounds or, or, or millions of pounds, you often wonder how can that how can that happen unless you're living that sort of drug fueled party life where slowly but surely you're spending and nothing's coming in. It must have been quite quite a depressing time, but you turned it into something positive. Yeah, I did. I mean, coming back to what you're saying there, I think look at it the other way around. If someone has a windfall, wins the pools, or you know gets it on the lottery suddenly their life is turned in an upward spiral. And in most cases, that new asset, that new wealth feeds more wealth. You can invest, you can do things. The same thing the other way around. It doesn't take much for a negative financial episode to kick in that can then start spiraling downwards. And We've all probably experienced it where, you know, your business or even, you know, your home life suddenly the boiler breaks down. You have to borrow from Peter to pay Paul and so on and so forth. And in effect, you know, to a lesser or greater degree, that's what mine was. The the Lloyd scenario was just that event that was the catalyst. They didn't actually come and take 1.5 million straight away from me. But all it needed was the threat of that for the banks to turn around and say, right, bit of a danger mark here. You've got to put the place on the market. It went on the market. It just happened at that time, the hotel property market was was declining and the value of the property was less than the potential debt. And so then it became difficult to sell. And then you had the circumstances of the fact that my family had been there for 25, 30 years and I'd been running it for, for 20 years. People were going, well, if you leave, then there's no customers because you're so much a part of it. So I became a problem for the sale. So the price of the value of the property went down and down and down. And before I knew it, I was actually selling the property for less than the money that I owed the bank. So when I came out, you know, there was literally no money. I was then obviously in order to do that, I'm having to use credit cards to keep the family afloat, to pay for food. That then builds up. You've got all the other costs of running a family. And before you know it, you know, and then the divorce, you know, that put strain on the marriage. The marriage then failed. I managed to you know, pass over as much as I could to my wife so that she got her half because I wanted to be able to feel comfortable. My children were supportive. And gradually it's a bit like dismantling. You know, I actually felt I remember going into therapy at the time because, you know, things were tough. and. I was asked to describe the feeling and I said, it feels as if I've walked into this enormous great manor house, which I've been living in, which I've been looking after for everybody else to enjoy. But I've actually just been running around like the butler trying to keep it all together. And I've picked up, I've been given this sledgehammer and I've gone around and I've literally knocked it all down. And I'm now standing in the rubble of my life. And I've now got the opportunity to rebuild that house 
but it doesn't necessarily have to be the house it was before. I can choose what rooms I want. I can choose how to decorate the rooms. I can choose to invite the people into those rooms that I want there, not the ones that were there already that I then had to look after. So it gave me that sort of metaphor to sort of rebuild a life based on on how I wanted my life to be, because I had been given this second chance. That that is such such a great way of putting it. Actually, I can you know you can visualize that rubble standing there, and as you say, you 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 had the choice to build the room that was going to work for you, and the room or the rooms you built is what you do now. You talked about the the first uh, occasion that your colleague mentioned that erotic massage would be something that you do. As I'm listening to you describe embarking on that journey i wonder how you do it i i i get it that therapists have somebody sit on the couch let's say and they talk to them and they talk through how does an erotic therapist or a, a sexual engineer work practically with clients yeah, i mean i think the way to describe my approach as i said earlier on is humanistic i mean obviously i would say it took probably five years to sort of develop my own principles my own way of working I you know I trained as a psychosexual therapist in that process it wasn't just the massage I had lots of other trainings that I did but I've always been somebody who brings my experience and puts it into the pot and then fits it all together and so I tend to be a bit of a maverick uh, and I approach things in the way that I feel is right for me and fortunately it seems to work But coming back to the world of sexuality, even as a child, I found the approach that we had to sexuality quite bizarre. I remember uh, as a 14 year old, 13, 14 year old watching, coming, uh, standing outside a cinema. And this is going to show my age. And there were two billboards out there. One was for The Exorcist and one was for uh, Last Tango in Paris. And I can remember looking at that and thinking, why are they both graded as X rated movies? at the same sort of category, but yet one is about sex and one is about horror and why we as a, why we had this issue. Um, and even when I was training as a, as a masseur, I put my hand up one day, you know, it was a therapeutic massage course. It was very traditional Swedish therapy and everything, but it was me and 15 women. And there came a point where we'd learned about the anatomy, the physiology, the endocrine system. And I thought, well, now's the time to really maybe ask the question about arousal. And if you're giving a massage to someone, what do you do as a, as a therapist if somebody starts getting aroused when you're giving them the massage? I thought it was a very sensible question. And I thought for the women around me, it's you know going to be an issue that they're going to have to deal with at some point. And the two nurses who were the trainers, I genuinely expected to have a practical, sensible answer. And one of them giggled and said, oh, that's a typical man question. And the, the other one basically said, well, I just grab it and then whack it on the top and it goes away. And I went, you can't say that to people. But again, it was this issue of why are we so afraid of sexuality when every single one of us thinks about it? We're only here because of it and we all like doing it. So why can't we deal with it in a sensible, pro- professional way? And so my approach was always like that. And then it was understanding how to allow people or enable people a space to do this. So coming back to your question about, you know, what is it? So to give you an, I'll give you an example. Let's say, okay, I'll give you an example of somebody who contacted me uh, two days ago. Uh, it was a woman before who Before you do that, Colin, just before you do that, what is the answer? Because you didn't get it from the trainers. Just before you jump ahead 
and give me the example. What is the answer to that question when a professional? Well, okay, so um, so when I when I went when I started practicing as a masseur in an osteopath clinic. Uh, to get experience, I was sort of doing work experience in osteopath clinic. I practiced what I preached. And so if he sent a person up to me to have some remedial massage, they would walk into the room. I would talk to them about what it was that they were there for. And if it was if it was just an arm or a leg, then I didn't bother. But if it was going to be something where they had the whole body massage, even though they were keeping their underwear on or being covered with towels, I would say, uh, oh, and just to, to give you um, a little bit of pointers and how this is going to work, and then I would add into it literally in the conversation, and there is a possibility that at some point you might feel aroused. If you feel uncomfortable, um, then I'll leave the room, or we just carry straight on. It's perfectly normal. And nine times out of ten, when you say that, they won't get aroused because you take the anticipation away, and you've made it very matter-of-fact. But what I then found happening at the end of the conversation, end of the appointment, often they would turn to me and go, um, actually, while I'm here, you mentioned about arousal. Can I have a little chat with you about? And they would then come up with erection problems, premature ejaculation, unable to orgasm, problems in their relationship. Because let's face it, they're just laying on a bed, semi-naked. It's been a most intimate connection with anybody. And I, they, they've trusted me. So now they want to trust me with other things that they can't talk to other people about. So it became very clear that, you know, they weren't talking to their partners. They weren't talking to their doctors. They weren't talking to their priests. You know, they, they weren't talking to their friends even. But they, this little space of being in the osteopath clinic with me as a masseur gave them the opportunity. Hairdressers are dealing with this all the time. You know, they get revealed, lots of secrets revealed, you know, in, obviously it's in a public place, so it's less intimate. But I mean, you know, provide a space to somebody and provide somebody with the opportunity to open up and they will open up. So so that's my answer there. It's quite obvious when when men get aroused during those kinds of sessions. What about women? Do you have the same conversation with women or is it not necessary because they, you know, they don't get an erection like a man does. So they can disguise any arousal they're getting from a male or a female masseur. Um, <laughs> I, think, um, I gotcha. No, not. No, I think I think you've just. Uh, I say to hate to say it, you've highlighted your, should we say, lack of awareness of female sexuality. Put it this way, and I don't mean to be unkind there. Your experience of female sexuality will be very uh, relevant to your experiences. And should we say every time you've been in a sexual experience with a woman, the intention has been there for you and she to get aroused. You've never been in a situation where a female is trying not to get aroused. Have you? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I'd like to think so, but I don't. I don't know. Am I, am I having my own personal therapy here? Because <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, you're there for a reason. You're both there for a reason because you're both turned on. Whereas with a, a massage, even if the person is there to have a, a non-erotic experience, there are certain processes that will go on in the body and in the mind that can kick in that cause us to get turned on even though they're struggling not to. So in the case of a female, particularly, one of the biggest complaints I have from most women is the lack of foreplay with their partners, you know, whether it's casual partners or whether it's long-term partners, you know. And there is a reason for that. I'm not knocking men, but we are generally 
only designed as males to have sex within 15, 20 minutes, whereas the female is designed to have sex over maybe an hour, two hours, prehistorically, primarily, you know, from the point of view of the biology of the body. And much of that is done through cerebral arousal as well as physical. Now, if you're having a massage, for a woman, maybe even just the thought of going for a massage where she knows that her body's going to be touched will already start turning her on before she's even gone to get the massage. Then she's lying on the massage bed. And now for the first time in five years, she's having her head stroked. She's having her back massaged. Her, her mind is going into fantasy of, oh, wouldn't it be nice if it went a little bit further? All of these things happening. Now, physically, obviously, she's not going to get an erection. But for some women particularly, it's just an involuntary reaction of the body moving, maybe making sound. And obviously, there's the, the natural process of just b becoming vis visually aroused through being you know, uh, lubricated. And for some women, that will produce enough lubrication for her to go, oh, my God, what happens if he sees that there's a wet patch in my knickers? Now, all of that will produce anxiety if she's thinking that she can't get aroused. And so what happens? She becomes tense. And then the whole purpose of the massage, whether it's about to rectify a muscle problem or a a difficult a lower back problem is nullified because she's now tense because she's thinking oh my god what happens if he notices that i'm a bit turned on so by bringing the subject up and making it very open and normal she knows she's okay can she can remain relaxed and in in the case of the osteopath clinic knows it won't go to any level any for anything further so that's how it all started but then when I started working, obviously training as a psychosexual therapist, I was seeing people who had a myriad of different issues. As I said, you know, it can be performance related. It can be lack of education. It can be lack of experience. And so what I'll try to do is understand the psychology first, and then I will create a uh, practical experience that will hopefully give them the ability to explore how their body's going to behave or how they feel so that it's basically it's like a trial run you know without it being fully sexual i'm using massage so to give you an example of let's say let's take a simple example of you know, i'll say about a female because i've had a lot written about women who have difficulty reaching orgasm and it's a lot more common than most people realize so a woman might contact me and said look you know i i i i'm okay having an orgasm with masturbation, but I find it really difficult to orgasm when I'm with somebody else or through penetration. Now, the first thing for me to do is find out, A, how sexually experienced is she? B, if she's only been with two or three guys, let's say she's 25, as, as was the uh, lady who contacted me the other day. She's 25. She's had two previous boyfriends. So her experience of men and skills is down to two guys. So I now need to find out whether those men are men who've invested in foreplay, who are confident in what they're doing, but also are they the right dynamic for her? She might have come from a background where sex was a bit scary or maybe she'd had an un uh, uncomfortable experience. So she had a tendency to go for nice men, men who were kind, men who were gentle, men who worked in professions that were all about making people happy. Now, those type of men sexually they'll be cautious. They don't want to do anything that's going to cause upset. So they will look for signs from the female as to what they should do next. They won't take risks. Now, most women 
want the man to lead, that most women want to feel the desire of the male. So if she, on the one hand, wants to be in a safe place with a safe male, but there's but the bottom, but underneath that, there's this primal need to feel desired, she's going to feel maybe a little bit frustrated. So in the case of someone like that, she's now lying there with this partner going, oh, I wish you would do this, I wish you would do that, I wish you'd take the initiative, I wish we'd do something a bit more exciting. And he never does. So her brain never relaxes enough to allow her to reach orgasm. And then along comes the, you know, the big, strong, assertive guy who basically grabs her by the hair and says, I'm taking you now. And bingo, she has an orgasm because suddenly she's being desired. You know, there's, a, there's that sort of primal urge. Or it could be the reverse. It could be the fact that the partner woman is only ever with men who are very assertive and they never give her foreplay. But there will be a psychological, there will be an element of how the other person is performing. But then I need to understand what's going on in her head and what is causing the anxiety. Is it frustration that he's not doing enough? Uh, is it, fr- is it uh, the fact that she's maybe uh, nervous or maybe a little scared? Maybe she's self-conscious about her body. Maybe uh, she's worried about performance. Is he going to enjoy it? Am I the best woman he's ever had? All of this stuff going on. So I'll find out the psychology of it. So let's say, for instance, in this case, it's somebody who's been (coughs) in relationships with men who are a little bit assertive, sorry, a little bit passive. I will then design a massage that brings in surprises. I'll bring in something that is a bit stronger or assertive so that she it's not predictable, which is what she's looking for. (laughs) And hopefully that will allow her to let go in her brain, which might bring through the orgasm. And and, but 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 surely you there are guys that are in between both of those caricatures. You know, there are guys that are sensitive, but also assertive at the same time. And they kind of ebb and flow between. Is that the perfect lover for a woman? And what's the reverse? I mean, what what's the reverse, Colin, in terms? We talk a lot about the women uh, uh, as an example. What about for the guy? Well, for men, I mean, obviously, you know, I see I see heterosexual people, bisexual people, gay people. So it's all relevant. <coughs> but obviously, going talking like this, it's easier to go with the traditional line, as it were. So with guys, um, the most uh, frequent sort of connection or uh, approach is exploring their own sexuality. Um, I see a lot of men who are questioning their fantasies or exploration in the sense that they are they don't see themselves as gay or bisexual but they want to have uh, a massage from a male to find out what it's like and maybe explore it so as well as sexual performance i've done a lot of work around sexuality generally from the point of view of sexual attraction and so providing an environment that is safe that also allows them to express and understand their sexuality better. So that's that's quite a common area. Erection problems, premature ejaculation are two things. Now, those are very similar to women in regard to the, the cause, and that will be through anxiety. If a man is anxious during sex, then he won't get an erection. We're not designed to hunt and fuck at the same time, basically, from a physiological point of view. So if the man is getting stressed during sex, he will possibly either... Initially, uh, the body will go into if he's if he's of a certain age, if he's under 25, he'll probably come too soon. 
He'll hold the erection, but he'll come too soon. If he's over 25, 30, he might lose his erection through anxiety. For some men, and the least common, is not being able to reach orgasm at all. So those are the three areas where basically the body's saying, we're not going to do this because we don't want to put ourselves in a vulnerable position because we might get eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. So any level of anxiety. Now, that anxiety will have come from childhood and experiences when we were young. So it might be a guy who was growing up and he had a very uh, assertive, dominant or judgmental mother, for instance. He's now gone into relationships where when he's with a woman, if he hears or thinks he hears criticism, his anxiety goes up. So there he is having sex with this female. She's not responding. She's not reacting. Doesn't mean she's necessarily not enjoying it, but she's not giving signs of pleasure. His anxiety is going to go up because he's a bit nervous thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? Next thing he loses his erection. So it's understanding what triggers his anxiety and helping him work that through and then maybe teaching him skills, <coughs> which if he feels that anxiety coming up, I will then teach him skills to revert back to, to give to the female that can take his anxiety back down. Because let's face it, you know, none of us get very good sex education. And men particularly, you know, we tend to learn by, you know, what our mates have told us or what we see on porn. And that ain't the best education. So teaching men a repertoire, I always say that for most men, I hate to say it, sex is a bit like going in and having a Big Mac. You know, you're hungry, you go in, buy the Big Mac, stuff it in. And if a woman is in a relationship with a man who likes Big Macs, she likes Big Macs, but she doesn't want it every day of the week. But he's quite happy with the Big Mac because he's never known anything different. Some men have developed into going into, you know, the posh restaurant and having a three-course meal. And they know that four plays a good thing. They know taking a little bit of time is a good thing, etc. But nevertheless, once they've found that three-star restaurant, they'll probably play safe and always go to that place because they know what to expect. But the confident male will say, right, actually, there's loads of different types of restaurants out there. Let's try different things every night. And that's what the women want. They want to be taken out to dinner and be told, it's a surprise dinner tonight. You've told me you like fish or you told me you like um vegan food now i'm going to surprise you with an amazing vegan restaurant you've never been to she's excited before she even gets there they've got to approach sex in the same way of i'm going to take you on this amazing journey i've learned a smorgasbord of skills some of which i'm going to try on you tonight another time i'll do something else let's see how you go and and that's again going back to our anthropology because the female was designed initially to have multiple sexual partners in order to a maximize sperm uh, harvesting, but also to create multiple paternities. So if the prehistoric female was having sex with ten males, she was getting a different male dynamic with all ten of those males. But now we're in a sexually monogamous society. Us poor guys, we've got to learn the skills of ten males. So the more the wider the repertoire, the more that relationship will work. So a lot of the men that come to me will come for classes that I'm teaching them how to understand the psychology of the female, how to learn skills, teach them how to give an erotic massage, which basically is just constructive enhanced foreplay and and become more confident. It's uh, it's such a fascinating insight. I feel like I'm getting my own sex therapy right now. The the, the one thing that jumps out at me, Colin. Is, is what about in those, so when people are having sort of early relationships, you, you know, exploring together is, is a lot easier. When 
people have been married or in a relationship for a very long time, the sort of monotony sets in, even though the, the sex and the interaction in whatever way it came can be quite dynamic in the initial few years, let's say. That might be a long time. But then you have, I suppose, most relationships doing something different must be awkward. It must be, you know, it's that kind of we go to bed at a certain time and occasionally we make love or fuck or have sex or whatever. How do people, how do you find people react to this idea that they've got to think differently? They're 10, 15 years into a a marriage or a relationship. They've got kids, work and everything else. Are they harder to reach? Are they harder to sort of reinvigorate their sex lives? I suppose that's the the obvious question. Well, firstly, I mean, as I said, I've been doing this now for 18 years. And if, if I go back 18 years, the approach to sexuality then generally was seen as either reproductive or something smutty and dirty. And you had a little bit of tantra coming in. So there was a bit of spiritualness coming in. But now come forward and the media, I mean, the media's approach to it then was very much like that. And back in 2015, I was interviewed by Cosmopolitan magazine. And it was very interesting. It was a very good article. It was eight pages long. But even the heading, you know, would you would you would you pay this man one hundred and seventy five pounds to give you an orgasm was very it was very, you know, sort of razzmatazz and scandalous type thing. And the approach in the article was like that. Now, interestingly, I've been interviewed quite a bit by various different magazines in the last two, three years. And the approach now by the media is much more mature. There's a lot more programs on television that are not scandalizing, but trying to understand why, how, what. So people are learning a lot more. People, you know, you're sitting at home, you've been married 20 years, you flick on Netflix, look at the program Sex Education on Netflix, a great success. You know, that's brought it very much into the home. Even I was learning more about, you know, uh, enemas on Netflix than I've ever learned before by watching two teenage kids in a school talking about anal sex because I've never actually sat down and worked out how to give myself or anybody else an enema. But, I mean, you know, this is what's happening for people. It's being normalised by the media much better now. And so there are conversations happening. Now, the interesting thing, what I've seen a big resurgence of, because I'm sure it's always been out there, but people haven't talked about it, is what's known as the cuckold scenario, where the male wants to watch his female (laughs) partner have an interaction with another male. And that is becoming a lot more, a lot more frequent. And and so I've done a bit of study around that to find out what the motivation is underneath. I very rarely get it the other way. Occasionally you do. But usually if it's the female wanting to watch their male partner have sex with another female, it's still about the male's pleasure. It's not about her pleasure of watching. Whereas the male watching the female, it's about his pleasure. And so often that will be, you know, we've been married for 25 years uh, nothing's really happening. I want some excitement in the in in the marriage. I want something to happen. Maybe by getting my wife to have this experience, we could then develop that, and then maybe the two of us could have an experience with two people. So it could be a lead in to maybe expanding the relationship, or maybe going to a party or an event. It can also be where he actually wants to explore. Um, his own sexuality. I mean, I have one the other day who was saying this, and I said, well, this is very much about your own approach to, to males. Watching another male with your partner can actually get you approval from the male who is with your partner. And so actually it can be a, 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 a psychological version of male-to-male 
bonding. In other words, I'm sharing with you my most favourite toy, and now you're like me. So it can be a, a homoerotic experience, even though the female's getting the experience. So that's coming through a lot. Now, for a couple who are basically just wanting to say, look, we need to do something, again, what's the choices? They go online and they join a website that does threesomes or foursomes. That's intimidating because, A, you don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know whether there's chemistry there. Maybe one of you has the chemistry and the other one doesn't. All sorts of things are fraught with it. It could be going to a party. Again, you know, what are we expected to do? How how should it be? How do we behave? Just because we're there, does that mean we have to have sex with other people? All these things can be in the mind. You know, what do I look like? What clothes do I wear? You know, the biggest problem for a lot of women going to sex parties is what do I wear through the evening? You know, do I take my clothes off? How do I look good? You know, all sorts of things come up. So what I try to do is educate people in a in a way that they can come along so for instance it might be it might be the female having the massage and it might be the husband or boyfriend watching and he might join in part way through and then afterwards they can go away and go that actually felt okay or actually i really enjoyed this or i enjoyed that but it provides them with a safe bounded area to explore something without leaping into the deep end and that more and more couples are beginning to do that. And I would recommend it. I talk about it as renegotiating the relationship. I'll give you an example of a couple who came to me four or five years ago, which is very typical. Married, two, three kids grown up. Kids have left home. They're now in their late 40s. She'd actually come to me on her own for her own appointment because she was very frustrated. Her husband wasn't particularly sexual anymore. And the sex they were having was very bland and boring. After the appointment she had with me, she said, look, I really want this relationship to work, but I cannot go through the next 15, 20 years without sexual stimulation. I'm worried that I'm going to end up having an affair. I said, well, we need to get your husband along here. And she said, he won't. He won't even talk about sex. So she went back and I said, well, look, what you need to do is go to my website, pretend you've never seen me before, you know, throw him a few articles and see if you can encourage him just to have a chat. That happened and we spoke online and, you know, she basically gave him an ultimatum and said, you know, unless we deal with this, something something's going to happen. So on that basis, we had a conversation. He was quite timid. He worked as a plumber and, um, you know, his world was quite small and quite safe and he saw no reason to expand it or change it. But having spoken to me and maybe I'd opened up a few areas, he said, OK. So they then came along for a counselling session. They got to meet me. They then booked a couple session where I gave her the massage and he joined in. And at the end of that, he went, wow, that was really fun. I enjoyed that. Can I learn a bit more? So he then came along for his own lesson with her blessing to practice on other women so that he could explore what it was like to touch other women. <clears throat> now, going back to the motivation underneath it, what we what we actually had was somebody, the female, she had come from a background where her parents, her father worked in the oil business. So as a child, she spent a lot of time traveling around the world and adapting to new schools, new friendships. So life had been exciting. Life had been always an adventure. But when she came to get married and settle down, she wanted someone safe. She wanted someone secure. So she married the guy who had the local business in Essex 
And, you know, they had a very good marriage with two, two, three kids, etc. But after 20 odd years, she was now hankering for that excitement. But it just wasn't there. He, on the other hand, had grown up as an only child living in a particular area. And the question I put to him was, <coughs> which really revealed it all to both of them as to why they had these differences, was when, when you're at home, what is it that most frustrates you? And it turned out that the most frustrating thing for him was he wasn't allowed to play with his friends after six o'clock at night because they would cross the road and go into the field opposite the village. And so I said, so what you're saying is that you grew up with boundaries around you and that your understanding from your mum was that if you cross those boundaries, something dangerous would happen. He said, yes. And I said, so that's how you approach sex. And that's why you won't go to a party or won't do anything exciting. And he realized the connection. She then also heard the connection and realized that this wasn't about him just not wanting to have sex with her. It was the fact that he was too timid to break the rules. And so once he was given permission to break the rules as a 45-year-old man and not the 10-year-old child, he let go. Within a year, they were going to parties, they were exploring, and his confidence grew. She was much more comfy with the whole situation, and they obviously stayed together. So that's kind of a journey that will take place. It's incredible. It's, it's fascinating listening to you unpick these things that I suppose most of my listeners will have experienced, are experiencing, questioning, what do I do next? When we look at something like um, cheating, you know, husband cheats on wife, wife cheats on husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, do you work with people or deal with those scenarios where the the relationship is broken down? I suppose my question is, do do people deserve a second chance if they've cheated? Or or even if it's just like you said, people's partners become frustrated because their 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 joint sex life is not exciting, so they go elsewhere. The woman you mentioned as a as a, as an example decided to seek therapy rather than cheat. But people do cheat all the time. They often get caught. But do do you find that in, in any of the therapy sessions that the work that you do that people are prepared to give their partners a second chance? Do they even deserve a second chance if they've cheated? Well, again, it's about our relationship with sexuality, sex and intimacy. And it's interesting when I'm doing a workshop, let's say for men to learn on women, let's say it's a group workshop with men learning to, to give women. One of the questions I'll ask at the beginning is how many of the men are in relationships? And if they are, does their partner know they're here? Some will say, yes, my partner's very happy for me to be here. I'll do it. And others will say, actually, no, I'm going to tell her next week. My then action is to then go to the female volunteers who are there, who are there to be the bodies that day and say, look, if your partners were going to go and do a workshop like this, would you want to know in advance? Would you want to know on the day? Or would you be happy to find out a couple of weeks later, which you probably will, because he's going to come back with all these new skills. And almost without exception, the women will go, the fact that he's touching another woman isn't a problem. As long as I know in advance, and I know that it's about ultimately my pleasure, because if he's doing this to help me enjoy myself more, then I'm not fussed if he's touching another woman, because it's being done for me. Whereas the male, many of the men won't say this because they feel that the woman would be angry. And it really screws the guys up when the women say this and they go, really? So for men, you know, betrayal is different for both male and female. And actually, for many women, the physical act of the sexuality is not a problem. 
it's the emotion that goes underneath it or it's the lack of respect that's underneath it that the male has shown that is a, is the deal breaker having an affair or having sex behind the fem- uh, the female partner's back it's about the the breaking of trust it's about it's about the deceit rather than the physical act itself whereas the other way round <clears throat> if the female has sex with another male <clears throat> and obviously you know we've got to take into account uh, gay and lesbian relationships as well which again similar dynamics but in a traditional heterosexual relationship if the male's having sex behind his female partner's back then sorry beg your pardon the other way around if the female's having sex with the male uh, behind the male's partner back he sees it as competition he's getting disapproval now go back to those primal dynamics the female seeks to be desired the male seeks approval so as long as whatever the male is doing is ultimately showing his desire for the female, i.e. I'm learning all these new skills, I want to get more confident, and I want to bring it back and, and help you, then she'll be okay with it. It could be, actually, I want to be dominated, I want to be spanked, I want to have you know someone use a strap-on on me, and she just is not into that. So he's finding a new, he's, with their with agreement, he's doing it, to explore something that she uh, doesn't want to do. Now, again, you know, I would always say, if there's something that your partner won't do, sit down with your partner and go, I really want to try this, but I know you don't want to. Is it okay if I go off and try it elsewhere? And I'll tell you all about it. You can even come along and watch if you want, or I can tell you about it afterwards. You know, it's no doubt I was saying using the analogy the other day about playing golf. If you're in a relationship and someone loves playing golf, you have a choice. You either allow them to play golf and get on with your own thing or you maybe go to the golf course every now and again and enjoy it or you join in with them. But what you don't want them is to go off and have secret golf sessions because they you might worry that they're doing all sorts of other things. So but to, I mean, well, you obviously know this well much better than I do, Colin, but, it, you know, to think that people could sit down with their partner and say, you know, I want you to try strap on or I want you to watch me have sex with another man because that's what I really desire. Isn't that the beginning of the end of a relationship rather than the beginning of a relationship? You would be surprised at how many women want to know. OK, <clears throat> I mean, take, take the scenario of a, a young guy who has erection problems. He's worried that he's going to maybe lose his erection when he's having sex because he feels he's going to get rejected. He's going to be not good enough. He's not going to be good enough as the other male. You speak to most women and say, if your guy came to you and said, I have erection problems, how would that make you feel? Most women will go, actually, it's quite cute. The fact that he trusts me, the fact that it's not a problem. So when I get a guy with erection problems, I say to them, look look at the reality here. You're getting anxious because you want to make it really good for her. So why not tell her that? What do you mean? Well, listen, you go in and you say to her, look, there's a problem. There's a possibility I might get really anxious because I really, 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 really fancy you. And I want to make this amazing for you. But because of that, my anxiety will go up. So I might lose my erection. He can't lose now. If he loses the erection, she's going, I can control his body. He's so into me. He, he loses erection. She's going to enjoy it, relax. That'll make him relax. He probably will get an erection. If he doesn't say anything, then he's going to be anxious. She's going to be worrying about why is he not getting erection? Maybe I'm not good enough for him. And it all becomes an area of, of, of supposition of 
who's, you know, what's actually really going on here. So clarity is important. So yes, initially, it might be difficult to express your desire. But when you talk it through, and also when you find out why, so for instance, I get, let's say I get somebody who does have a fantasy and they want to explore it, but they don't know how to share it. The first thing is for them to understand why they have that fantasy. Because if they say, you know, I'll give you an example of a, a foot fetish. This was a, at a talk um, I gave on the psychology of kink and fetish. And the next day, this one of the audience members, a lady, contacted me and said, I now understand why my my ex-boyfriend had a foot fetish. I never understood. It wasn't a problem for me, but for the fact that actually I've got great breasts, but he seemed to prefer my feet. And so I was kind of confused by it all. What it turned out was the boyfriend uh, had had a very abusive childhood. And as a youngster, home life was difficult and scary. But at primary school, he always used to talk about a teacher he really liked, used to make him feel safe. And um, she used to take her shoes off at the front of the class. Now, his unconscious brain, when he was with a woman, when he discovered that by touching a woman's feet made him feel more relaxed, allowed his erection to come through. So when he when he was able to explain or when when she understood that actually this was the mechanism, it wasn't about the fact that her breasts weren't good or that he didn't like the rest of her body. It was the fact that her feet allowed him to have an erection. So she then went with it. So often, although on the surface, the fetish or kink might be a bit weird or sound a bit weird, the basic dynamic underneath, the basic motion, emotional driver will be finding a place of trust, whether it's being spanked, whether it's being tied up, whether it's being urinated on. It will ultimately come down to I can do this. And by doing this makes me feel I'm in a safe place. I'm relaxed. Oh, my God, I've got an erection. Oh, my God, I've had an orgasm. It's it's really interesting because I suppose the association with your, your your childhood and your sexual relationships or your relationships as you get older, you talk about foot fetish, you know, urinating. Some people might think that's perverse, but actually, it sounds like when people have these these desires, um, fantasies, that it's actually coming from not necessarily childhood trauma. It might be the opposite, but it it is innate that it comes from your childhood. That's pretty clear. I, I just want to go back to this. I, I, I find it fascinating that you will be in a room with a couple or individuals and then you teach them how to massage their partners to get them aroused or use techniques. How far does that go, Colin, with, with people that come in? And that's not me prying into. I'm just curious and I'm sure people are curious because my next question would be if some if people wanted to get in touch with you, they wanted to use your services, what can they expect in a session? Let's say two people are having problems mid-age, um, they, they really want to seek someone, they hear this podcast and they say, let's give this Colin a try, let's get in touch with him. What can they expect? Well, I mean, if it's a, it depends whether it's a single female, a female in a relationship, male, you know, or a couple. Each one will have their dynamic. The first thing is to try and understand a little bit about what, what the issue is. Let's say it's a couple. Hopefully they've had some conversations and I'm not just getting it from one and not the other, because quite often I'll get the male contact me, but he actually even hasn't had the conversation yet with his female partner. So it's important that they're on the same page to a degree. Then uh, I'll discuss with them what the motivation is. And it might be, well, you know, we just want to expand our relationship. So, for instance, they might want to come along for a nice sensual massage, the two of them together 
with me and another masseur. And it generally might be me giving the female a massage and um, a, a female giving the male a massage. So it's them stepping into that world to try something with two other people, but it's boundaried, it's safe. I will then say, right, you know, we need but to can know. I, can, I, can, I, can I just jump in there? When you and the female give the sensual massage, it's obviously for the pleasure of both clients. But I'm, I'm just trying to understand that if you're giving somebody a sensual sexual massage, surely you yourself as a professional are not getting aroused. And, and if you do, that's natural. But I'm trying to I'm trying to understand how that works. If they're coming to learn how to have a better relationship, if not a better sexual relationship. But, but that this is more of I call this more of an experience rather than learning. So this is them just stepping in to have the experience of receiving and enjoying it. At the end of that, they might go, oh, that was amazing. I'd love to learn how to do this. They would then come back. They have a choice. They can either learn to practice on one another. So it might be she becomes the receiver and I do a class teaching him how to do uh, a central massage routine, but also bringing in clitoral arousal, vaginal, how to teach him to help her ejaculate, how to help her uh, have multiple orgasm, different positions. If he's someone who's quite naturally quite passive, to get him more assertive, to do things that she's never experienced before, or vice versa. It might be the fact that he's a bit cack-handed. Maybe he's a car. Maybe he's a, an electrician, and he doesn't quite know how to be sensual and to teach him to be more sensual with her. So she gets the benefit of all that experience, but at the same time, you know, they're they're doing it together, and then they'll swap, and then he'll lie on the massage bed, and I'll teach him. I teach her on him. It might be that they say, right, that was great. Now we'd like to do it together. Can we have a volunteer in? And we'll have, let's say, a female on the massage bed. And my husband and I will do it together to give to them. So that that then gives them the opportunity. Let's say six months down the line, they do go on the internet and they do invite somebody back, a female or a male. And this is what I say to couples, by, by incorporating for instance, sensual massage or constructive foreplay into the relationship, it removes the necessity to have penetrative sex. And so let's imagine that you're now a couple, you've had this journey, you've had your experience, you've now done your class, and you want to now give it a go at home. You've now set up your bedroom, your spare bedroom as your playroom. You take it out of your your main bedroom so that it keeps your private space, you know, sanctified. You've got a massage bed up, you've got candles, music, and everything. You've met somebody online or you've met them down in a pub pub or club or whatever. You've invited them back. You open up the door, they walk in, and it's all beautifully set up. They're feeling safe. They're feeling that you're genuine and you're not just some weird couple who are going to try and get them onto the bed because they're not taking you into the bedroom. They lie down. You as a couple then give this person the massage. You can both communicate with each other above so that you can say, yes, thumbs up. I like this person. Thumbs down. No. So you could either take it higher or lower from the point of view of how much erotic elements go into it. You could do an awful lot to this person and keep your own clothes on. You don't even have to take your clothes off. Or you might go, actually, we're comfortable with this. Let's get naked together. And you can let it develop one way or the other. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to become fully sexual it could be that it becomes just about oral just about hands and this person after they come off the massage bed irrespective of what's happened they're going to go away happy and then afterwards the couple go into their bedroom and then make amazing love together so it could be like that so it's it's a it's a stepping stone to something more 
erotic and uh, uh, sexual, or it could go the whole way. So that's a typical scenario. It's so interesting, Colin. Um, I could talk to you all day, learn uh, all day long, and learn learn so much. But as a final word, it sounds to me, and I'm always trying to sort of find out what the spin is on my second chance. But it does sound to me that when people are having problems in their their own personal relationship or or individually, that by working with someone like yourself, they can learn to, you know, rekindle, reignite not only their relationship, but their own sexual pleasures. Do you have a book or anything like that, that people can, or a website, if people want to get in touch, they want to read your book, they want to visit your website and explore this issue a little bit more in a safe space where they're taking the first steps, what do they do? Well, just coming back to the second chance aspect of this, and I think I would say that 75 to 80% of the people I see come to me because they are, in effect, wanting to restructure their life. Now, it might be after a separation, a divorce, a change of job, a change of... I mean, COVID has allowed many people to restart or reboot their life in a different way. So I've never been busier at the moment. People have had to, you know, allowed themselves a chance to make changes. Um, it might be bereavement. It might be... I just want to be different. I want to learn to be different. So I, I would say 95% of people come to me with the motivation of wanting to try something new. I'm not going to make the same mistakes as I've always made before. So there's always a second chance element there. I have my own website, which is intimacymatters.co.uk, which is my main therapy website. Uh, and it's got all the massage on it, and it's got uh, lots of descriptions, interviews, stuff like this, etc. So there's a lot of information on there that people can read. Uh, I also have a website called intimatetutorials.com, which is basically video tutorials of teaching what I do. And people, if they're not able to get to London to see me to actually do live classes, they can use that. And those are the two main websites. The book is yet to be done. I'm waiting to have time to sit down and do it, but I'm still too busy doing the day-to-day stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm always open to, you know, doing presentations. I do talks and I also, I also run my own events. I, I'm, we're, we're right now doing something called dinner and decadence parties, which are basically up to 30 people going out to dinner. And then after dinner, they then go to a place where there are massage beds that they can explore and practice sensual massage with their partners or with other people. So it's not a sex party per se. It's more of a social, sensual, erotic massage party, but always starts with a four-course dinner, which runs for three hours, where they get to meet everybody beforehand. So it's quite a sophisticated evening, and it's elegant. Um, And people can take from it whatever they want. Some people will leave after the dinner, having spoken to like-minded people. Others will stay until three in the morning and enjoy themselves in many ways. And that can be couples or singles. Uh, And we're also doing male, a male only and a female only night. So there's all different levels. And I'm hoping to do some weekends away and maybe holidays. It all sounds very safe and very structured and very organised. But but behind this, there will be people that think that these are because of maybe they're narrow-minded, they they don't think wide enough that this is perverted. They may think that this is dangerous, this is unsafe. What what would your word be, Colin, to those people who think that um, it's beyond the realms of what relationships are supposed to be? It's beyond the realms of 
of how people should explore? I think, I mean, what I would say is I quite understand. And obviously it's about awareness. It's about maybe encourage them to look at something at a different direction. And I'll just tell you how once many years ago, I had a client come to me and they were about to have their first ever sensual massage. And they said, I'm really nervous. I'm really anxious about this. I said, well, what is it about this? She said, oh, well, it's so intimate. I said, okay, well, let's just put this into perspective. Have you had lunch? And they said, yes. I said, so what did you eat? I had a sandwich up at Pret. Okay, so where's that sandwich now? In my stomach. Okay, do you know who made that sandwich? No. Do you know where the ingredients came from? No. But yet you've put it inside you. Is that not more intimate than what I'm about to do? Oh, I've never thought of it like that. I said, exactly. A hundred years ago, you would never have allowed anybody to put food inside of you that you had no idea where it came from. But yet 150, 200 years ago, before the Victorians got got it in on the act, sexuality was a very open thing. We didn't even define sexuality. We just got on and did it because society said we could. So we're very controlled by what society tells us to do. We're not actually allowing ourselves to understand that it is so natural, so normal. Intimacy is such an important part of this. As I said, COVID has really highlighted that. It wasn't the sex that people were necessarily missing. It was the physical touch. It was the bonding. We are an, we are an insecure species and we need intimacy in order to bond together. Without intimacy, we feel rejected, we feel abandoned, and that will cause us to basically deteriorate from a healthy point of a health point of view. Touch is the most powerful healer. And don't look at intimacy and sex as something that is purely about pleasure or reproduction or naughty. It's about a health regime. Everybody knows that if you're experiencing touch and intimacy and your body is being aroused, you're producing hormones, endorphins that make you healthier. So even if you have to justify it at that level, and I know a lot of people who do come to see me, particularly women, put it into the therapy box because it is therapy. Women know how important sexual arousal is for them. And many women know, particularly women who are in their menopause or just before their menopause, their sexual libido goes through the roof. And if they've got nowhere to take it, it can become a challenging situation for them. So it's very wrapped up in our our biology, our psychology and our health regime as well. So I would say look at it in a different angle. Don't go down the doctrines that we've been taught before. Well, there you have it. Colin, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. I'm sure there is a lot, lot more that people can can find out about um, of all ages by going on to your intimacy matters website or, or or getting in touch or when the book comes out but also it's just interesting to see it and talk about something that is often I, I say taboo but it's not because as you say these things are being normalized but look I could go on and I shouldn't thank you Colin for being my guest thank you so not much at all. thank you Raphael take care and thanks for having me Well, that was an interesting deep dive into the intimacy of sexual relationships outside of the bedroom. I hope Colin's insights have aroused your curiosity and answered one or two things you didn't know. I definitely learned something new myself. If what Colin offers tickles your fancy, and I'm sorry for all these puns, 
You can find out more details in the show notes and the links attached to this episode on how you can get in touch with Colin and maybe take up one or two of his classes, lessons, da-di-da-di-da. I'll leave that with you. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share it with your friends, families and colleagues. If you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on the subscribe button. We need your support. Be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need support to pay for the production. So if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. If you want to advertise your products or services on this show, please get in touch by sending us an email. If you want to just simply connect, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.